part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. As you're seated this morning, open your Bibles to Psalm 77. We stood here just last week and we talked about how comforting it was to, um, to hear that God described himself or that the Word of God was describing God as a shelter and as a refuge. And, and Sherry gave this touching testimony of, of just how those words and that identity of who Christ was in her life, that she could run to that shelter, that she had a refuge. And, and I imagine that as Sherry was sharing her testimony uh, about that particular psalm, that many of you could say, hey, you know, this, this is my testimony. Hey, here, here's how it's played out in my life. And so we see God as this refuge after spending a couple weeks first in other psalms that just laid down the groundwork. Okay, here's who God is. And they didn't use words like shelter or strong tower. They just talked about the attributes of God, the character of God. So we went from the character of God to these attributes. He's a strong tower. He's a shelter. He's this refuge. And we ended last week with this great song that was just praising God for who he is. And then we went out of here in that victory march And sometime that afternoon, you probably heard the same tragic words that I did. How a gunman had come in and and took a congregation that might as well have been ours, could have been any congregation, any place, any church family, anywhere. And tragedy struck. And I don't know about you, but but my mind (laughs) kind of goes there. Okay, God, we just said this morning... We just said that you're this strong tower, that you are a refuge. We, we were proclaimed who you were. And yet, Father, we see this tragedy. And we hurt, not just hurt for those families. Father, we wonder the logistics of all of this. Because we believe that you are a holy God. We believe that you're an able God. We believe all these characteristics that we've been studying about the last couple of weeks. And yet, Father, we would be lying if we didn't say, okay, God, where were you today? I mean, can you be that honest with God? Do you wrestle with God on those things? Maybe not all the way down to where you finally just abandoned God. But as the psalmist is saying, he said he wrestled with God on these things in his soul. He went past the point of feelings, past the point of logic. And he said, man, in the very soul, in my very fibers of who I am, God, did you, did you forget to be gracious? The Bible talks and responds to the reality of life. I I hope I didn't offend anybody before. If if you love that phrase, God is good. And all the time. Okay, I believe that. I do believe that, okay? I just don't like bumper sticker theology because sometimes we can throw it out there. And sometimes if you've just lost your husband, if you just lost your wife, if you just had tragedy in your life, and somebody goes, well, you know, Sherry, God is good all the time, and all the time is God is good. You may believe that. And yet your heart, your ears may not be ready just to have something so simplistic as that. Does that make sense? I'm not trying to offend anybody. I'm just saying sometimes, guys, we mean well, but we don't know how to answer, and so we just kind of come out with, well, you know, God has a purpose. Of course he has a purpose. But I, I, as a pastor, I don't know how you bury your daughter in half your congregation 
and come away with simplistic faith and say, well, you know, there's a purpose. Of course there's a purpose. Of course he is sovereign. And yet if we don't deal with the reality of the real world, folks, and have real world answers, then we're not, we don't have anything to offer those who are lost in this world. I'm not saying that it's on our shoulders. Christ is the only answer. But how do we communicate the hope of the gospel? How do we communicate this hope of Christ in the midst of news that says, okay, half of a church church died and and their half were injured? And that has pretty much decimated this whole community as far as, you know, they're going to have to tear the church down. The, The reality of living as fallen people in a fallen world, how do we respond? Well, that's really where Psalm 77 is coming. We don't know what tragedy befell Asaph. Asaph is the guy's name that is writing this. It's not David. It's not Moses. It's not one of the other psalmists. It's Asaph. And he's writing this, and he's brutally honest. And some theologians tie it back to, you know, a story here uh, in the Israelites' path, you know, in Chronicles. And others will say, no, it kind of belongs here. We don't know because he never mentions the national tragedy or if it's a personal tragedy. All we know is that he is enveloped in tragedy probably on a national level. Something like last Sunday, something has happened that has troubled Asaph so much that he begins to pen these words. I put down here, he said, which is he that is God? A shelter of refuge? Or is he God who is simply distant and absent? or perhaps even incapable, or even maybe even uncaring to help his own people in the time of need. Now, I don't write that from a, a place of, um, of, of doubting God. I, I, doubt, I, I write that from a place of reality. I might have a neighbor. You might have a neighbor. You might have a friend that asks that question. Are we prepared biblically? Are we prepared spiritually to go and share the hope of Christ and answer, either in our own lives or to those that are questioning in a day and time like this? It's the big question, folks. It's a very complicated one. There's no way that we're going to be able to kind of give the answer in the next 20 minutes, okay? But I do want to show you what happens in this psalm and how Asaph addressed it, his real need, and, and where he came to a place of understanding. When we begin to try to wrap our hands and our hearts around the evil that in this world, folks, it's, um, it's hard. Hey, go with me on this. If there was a story from last Sunday that said 32 people had died in a gang war and they were, had a turf war and they were selling narcotics, this, that, and the other, and the blood shot the crypts or something like that, would you see that as tragedy? Or would you say, well, they kind of got what they deserved. You know, you, you kind of fool with that kind of life. And, you know, I don't know that we would have had the heartbreak. I don't know that we would be responding to God in the same way. I'm not saying that we shouldn't. I mean, we should have tragedy over every life that has ended. And yet there's a place in our mind that we can distance ourselves if we think that kind of the, the situation fits itself. Well, that's kind of what comes with the territory. And yet when we see that people that were just like you that came into a place of worship, they were praising God, they were there just to gather as a church family, and we see that, then we go, whoa, 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 time out, God. These people didn't deserve that. These were innocent people. Well, there's so many theological things wrong with those two statements that I just made about innocence and deserving. 
We don't have the time to go into it, but I, I'm telling you guys, this is not uncaring. This is not unfeeling to, to everything that went on. But none of us are innocent. And we all deserve hell. That's one of those realities that we have to face. If we don't have that foundation, then we're never going to see the hope of Christ and, and the answer of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Because somewhere we're going to think, well, that wasn't fair, and then this is fair. Now, let's just go ahead and say it biblically. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us deserve the grace that God gives us, either common grace to all people or specific saving grace to, the, to believers. And, and yet... I would assume that these people that gathered last week were believers, many of them. I would assume that Asaph, as he wrote this, was even thinking of his own belief. We know that he believes because he's, he's talking about his beliefs. And, and the people that he's seen this tragedy befall, maybe many of those were believers. And yet he asked these questions. We're going to start right in the middle of the questions, 7, 8, and 9, verses 7, 8, and 9. And listen to the, the gut-wrenching reality of what Asaph is dealing with in his mind, heart, and as he would say, even down in my soul. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And that's, say la. That, that's the, the ending. Is kind of the end of the prayer, the end of the thought there. Never once they say, "Okay, God, you're my refuge and you're my shelter." Never once does he come. Hey, God, you know I don't understand, but you're good all the time, and all the time you're good. But he is struggling, folks. He's a believer. He's put his faith. He knows who God is, and yet he is wondering if somehow, maybe even the very character of God somehow has changed in his circumstance. I want you to notice the nature of the questions here, though. It's very important that we kind of get the nature of the question. Is he questioning God's ability? That's a yes or a no. Is he? He said no. He, He describes the love as steadfast love. Is he saying, okay, God, you don't, you don't have the ability to have steadfast love? No, that's not what he's saying. He, he's not saying, okay, you're not a gracious God. He's not questioning God's ability to do these things. Really, the nature of the question is his desirability. God, do you desire to be gracious? Do you, do you desire to love in the midst of all of this? And really, Christian... Really, believer? Isn't that what we deal with sometimes? That we have our theology down, we have our truth down, we have the Bible down, and we go, okay, God, I know you're a loving God, you're a forgiving God, you're a gracious God. But right now, God, I'm just wondering, have you forgot to be gracious to me in this circumstance? Can you still love me in the midst of this sin or this thing that I've committed? So it's not so much that he's questioning, okay, God, are you able to do this, the ability of God, but God, do you desire to do this? Is there a desirability for you to be gracious even now? He doesn't say the Lord can't be favorable. He just said, God, are you ever going to be favorable again? He doesn't say that God can't be loving. He just said, God, have you decided not to love me in this circumstance? 
He, he, he has asked there. He hasn't said you don't have the ability to be gracious. He asked somehow, have you forgotten to be? And the kicker and perhaps the root of all those questions see that they've found in verse 9. Has he in anger shut up his compassion? God, are you angry with me? Have you looked upon my life? Not through the finished work of Jesus Christ, but have you just looked upon my life? And, and, and it is this response, this distance, this, this darkness that has come to my life, is that because you don't love me anymore? Are you angry at me? Because you don't have to raise your hand. But have you ever been there before? You believe, you have theology down, you have your verses, maybe even on your car. You say God is good all the time and all the time is God. You've got all of that, and yet there comes a time in your life that darkness comes in, either by invitation or it just knocks down the door and bolts into your life. And it comes in, and the response that you get as you begin to try to deal with all this is, God, are you angry? So where does he go? Look at verses 1 through 3. Let's go back at the top. He, he doesn't make light. He, he understands that we're fallen people in a fallen world. Verses 1 through 3. I cry aloud to the Lord, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand stretched out without wearying. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, meditate, my spirit's faints. This is not a guy who's just sitting back and saying, okay, God, take all this away. He says, God, I have searched you out. I have cried. I have prayed. I have lifted up my hand. God, I have done all these things. And yet I'm not feeling response. I'm not feeling intimacy. I'm not feeling closeness here. This is not a guy who's run away from God. He is pursued God. Have you ever been there? Again, don't raise your hands, but have you ever in, in the darkness pursued God and yet you couldn't find instantly just the light? <laughs> and, and, and the darkness was there for an hour or for a day or for a week or for a month? This is reality, guys. This is what happens to fallen people in a fallen world. Even with the finished work of Jesus Christ, we're still fallen people in a fallen world. And so there's just these things that happen not beyond the control of God, but somehow miraculously in cooperation sometimes with the will of God. He is sovereign over all things. So what does he do? His question again isn't, Lord, can you? His question is, Lord, will you? When darkness comes in your life, you may have, again, all the facts down, all the scripture down, and you might say, okay, God, I can't. Lord, I know you can, but will you? And in why isn't that kind of even more of a caustic, more of a heavy, more of a, a desperate kind of place to be? To know that God can, but for whatever reason. Okay, question, question, guys. And, and I understand the intimacy of this. I really do. Could God have stopped? that shooter to come in from that church. That's what could he have made on the very first shot, the gum jam, the gum jam, and, and he'd never be able to shoot a single person. Could God have done that? And isn't that what makes the tension so deep when you say, okay, God, why didn't you? 
See, it'd be one thing if we just said, okay, God, there are some things beyond your control, and you can't do these things. And we suffice that there's things that you can do and there's things you can't do, and so we can live with that. We just hope that, you know, you do, that we live in a place where you can do a lot of things in our lives. But when we say, no, God, you are, as we studied two weeks ago, you are all-powerful. You are all-knowing. You are all this, that, and the other. You are everywhere. You know what's going on. When we begin to look at the reality of those claims that God tells us, then we have to really struggle. Then God, why? Do you get that? Do you get the connection there? If God was unable, that's one thing. But if he's able and he doesn't, and philosophers and theologians have wrestled with that for years and years. So what does he do? What do you do when you hit dark times? We see the answer of what Asaph did in verses 10, 11, and 12. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. There's been many times I've told you that, you know, one of Satan's greatest uh, kind of traps is he wants you to think just what's happening today. And God is forever trying to expand your line of vision. Say, no, don't just think about the tragedy of the day, the darkness of the day, but remember the faithfulness of the past and my promise of the future. And, and, and God is always, through his word, always trying to do this in our lives, to expand our view to one that is an eternal view. Somebody wrote on, on Facebook, somebody this week, I know how the story ends or something like that. And I'm going, yes, yes we do. And that's what God wants us to know is that, okay, look, here, here's the fullness of mankind and we know what happens in Revelation. We know how the story ends and he wants us to have there. But when darkness comes in your life, guys, let me know. I'm just telling you, Satan would love for you to get right here and forget every one of those promises, every one of those prophecies, and every one of those realities. And so what does Asaph do? He said, like, I will, look what he says, I will appeal. There's an intentionality. I will appeal, I will remember, I will ponder. He's going to ponder what? Not just the current situation, but the years, the deeds and wonders of old, all your work and mighty deeds. On a day when he questions God's favor, what does he do? He remembers God's favor of the past. On a day when his very soul is questioning God's love, he remembers God's love in the past. On the very day that he's so troubled that he begins, God, have you forgot to be gracious? He remembers God's grace in the past. Now, is that a sufficient answer? He's expanded his vision. He, he sees, you know, a bigger picture. But what he's doing is reflecting that this moment that may have changed in his life, the circumstances and all that, that may have changed, but God hasn't. Here, here's the beauty, guys. Here's why theology is important, okay? Here, here's why it's really good to know 
that we have a God who never changes, who's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Because there's going to be days that you feel like God loves you, and there's going to be days that you don't feel like God loves you. God does not wake up in the morning like you and say, man, I feel good. Today's going to be a great day. Or, I don't even want to get out of bed. This is going to be a terrible day. God is not moody. God is not sitting there going, well, you know, you kind of ticked me off with this. He does not change. His love, His grace, His mercy, His goodness. And we see this through Jesus Christ. So part of it is He began to take His focus off of just the moment and He began to remember the days of old and God's faithfulness in the past. And if you've walked with Christ, I can promise you that there's been times that you can look back, maybe just last month or three years ago or ten years ago and say, God, here's where, man, it was dark on that day, but look at the... Look at the grace and look how you pulled us out of that. And look how you showed us love when we felt so unlovable. And you can go back and you can begin to find those times. And that's what he does. But I want you to notice one other thing that he does in verses 16 through 20. It's not just positive thinking. I will start thinking about positive things. When you have wrestled and you're in darkness and your very soul is questioning, you need more than just a little positive thinking. And what does he have? He puts his mind back on God. Verse 16. I I, I want you to see something and and go back verse 10, 11, 12 real fast. I said, I pondered, I remembered. There's a lot of I's and me's in there. Listen to the tone of verse 16 and following. When the waters saw you, O oh God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, they were deeply trembled. Uh, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world, and the earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Do you see the kind of a transition in thinking there? From my, I, 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 hey, here's my situation. And it's important us to see that he was determined, that he positioned himself. I will think upon these things. But what was he thinking upon? What did he begin to fill his heart and his mind with? God. And, and who God was, your ways. Now, when you read that, Anybody want to take a gander of what he was describing? He's actually describing a pretty famous event in the Old Testament of the Jewish people. What was he describing? Yeah, the Red Sea. A really dark time. Here God had promised them freedom, that they were not going to be slaves of the Egyptians anymore, that he would take them out of bondage. He begins to lead them out, and they find themselves all of a sudden in front of the Red Sea. Uh, right in front of, okay, how do we get across there? They look behind them, and there's a whirlwind of dust that's coming up, and they can see the glare of the golden chariots and Pharaoh's army coming after them. They are between the proverbial rock and a hard place. They see no way out. And 
the guy says, I'll make a way. And he opens up the, the waters. And they go across on dry land. I want you to know, guys, that picture of the Exodus, that picture from the Old Testament, is a forepicture, a pre-picture of the work of Christ. When we had no hope, when we have been offered freedom, and yet we cannot get us that freedom on our own, that only by God's provision do we have this freedom. All of a sudden we see Christ. One of the most beautiful pictures of redemption in the Old Testament. This exodus. God opening up to sea. Them walking across on dry land. The enemy defeated. It's just a pre-picture of the work of Christ. Church family, I, I wrote down weeks ago the plans. And today was Psalm 77. Long before last Sunday's tragedy. What a gracious God. What a loving God. Okay. Hey, you're going to have some real questions. Here's some real answers. What is that answer? That we begin to expand, not just from the present situation, but we see the glory of God, the consistency of God, and the love of God over time. And that we see it from an eternal perspective. That we take our eyes off of just self and even our darkness, and we put them back on who God is. God, you have done these things. And ultimately, guys, we drive ourselves to the foot of the cross and we see that God has solved this once and for all through Jesus Christ, through a cross where he took on our sins and an empty grave where he rose in victory over sin, death, and the grave. Bobby, my, den- my dilemma is still there. Yeah, yeah, it's there. We don't make light of that. I told you before and I'll tell you again this morning. As Christians, we do not make light of our troubles, we make much of Christ. And, and guys, I pray that that really means something to you, that you don't take that in some kind of unfeeling way. We don't make light. I cannot imagine that pastor this morning had to stand in front of that congregation. And what does he tell about those remainders, the remaining part of that congregation? I don't understand, but I think that God will give him a hope. But that hope is not just, okay, he's going to make everything better. No. Lives have been lost. Husbands have lost. Children have been lost. No, the hope goes to to this place where we begin to see that this world is not our home, that not every promise will be filled in this moment, but that God will keep every promise, every promise in eternity. We're going to end with a song this morning. Ricky, if you, if you want to go and uh, it's a song that's been out for a little while now, probably maybe a year or more. The cross has the final word. And, and that's the secret, guys. Not to make little of the misery, of the darkness, of the hurt that we have, but to make much of the hope that we have in Christ. And, and so as we stand, as we sing this, as we close out this morning, I, I pray that you'll see and the hope that is found in the words of this song, in the truth of it. That even though darkness comes, the cross has the final word. Let's stand together. Let's sing this as a prayer, as a proclamation, as believers in truth. Hey, God, we don't know everything. We don't know have answers of why and this, but here's what we know. Here's what we know. Here's what we know. Your love was shown through the cross. Your grace was shown through the cross. Eternity is shown through the cross.
Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.